Well, thank you, Kevin, and uh, welcome this morning to what is part nine of a nine-part series that we are calling Good to Know, and so you have come for the landing of the plane, and welcome to the closing ceremony, if you will, and actually a closing argument might be a better way to think about what we're going to be doing this morning. Remember about two or three years ago, I was in court. How, how does that work to start a statement? And I was on a jury um, uh, pool, and I was chosen to serve on the jury for a trial in Lancaster, in which one gentleman decided that he wanted to sell large equipment that was not his own to other people. So that did not go well for him, and as he stood there representing himself in the court over the three days that we sat there on the jury and tried to distinguish what was true and false and what was being said, this gentleman who chose on his own volition to wear his prison garb, because he was being held in prison during the trial, he decided to wear that, so he had his jumpsuit on or whatever, and then the prosecuting attorney over here was dressed as he was, and it finally came time for closing arguments, and basically what this gentleman had did is he'd walked onto any kind of construction site you might see and taken the VIN number down of a bulldozer or whatever and then listed it for sale. And then taken the money from the people who bought it and then, you know, there we go. It was pretty easy to track that this was a problem and wasn't his and it worked out that he ended up being guilty. And so his closing argument in the, in the courtroom, the prosecuting attorney made their closing argument. They give the defense the last word and the prosecuting attorney came up and he walked through all that had happened in the last two or three days, wrapped it all up kind of with a neat bow and, and basically said, there's no way in the world that anyone can possibly think that he's not guilty, blah, blah, blah. The guy in the jumpsuit gets up, he defending himself, and he said, um, don't just convict someone because of how they look. Now, that's true, but that doesn't help you here, buddy. <laughs> and his entire closing argument was around just how he looked. That was what his defense was, don't judge him because I'm wearing my prison closed, to which we're like, we're not judging you because of that, we're judging you because of what you've done. And closing arguments are really important, aren't they? And when they're not done well, they have very little impact, and it took us all maybe 12 minutes to find him guilty. And closing arguments is where we find ourselves this morning as we wrap up this little series on Good to Know that Solomon has kind of pulled his son up to the table and is going to give him a closing argument, going to kind of try to wrap up everything that's being said and kind of drive home, here's what I really want for you. It's almost like if you ever talk to a child or you're a teacher, talk to kids or coach or to whatever, and you kind of feel like they're listening to you but maybe not quite tuned in, you just kind of say, listen, let me just bottom line for you. Come here. Focus a little bit, pay attention. This is what I want for you. And by the way, parents do this all the time as you're getting your kids ready for kindergarten or getting your kids ready for high school or into college. It's like all of a sudden it's a moment of awareness as a parent like, shoot, did we do all we were supposed to do to get Junior ready for kindergarten? And mom is like, hey, remember, remember, be nice to your classmates. Remember, raise your hand if you have to go to the bathroom. You know, don't kick. And meanwhile, dad is like, Hey, if you have to burp, don't do it out loud. Just kind of keep it quiet. And, you know. and we're given this last bit of advice because it's kind of a closing argument. Here's a big season, big moment in your life. And Solomon's doing the same thing with his son. It's like, if you didn't get anything else, I said, get this. And he lands a plane at the end of Proverbs chapter 3. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Proverbs chapter 3 with me. Um, if you don't own a Bible, there's a Bible in the pew in the seat uh, near you. And Proverbs is a collection of sayings that were written many by a guy named Solomon, very wise uh, king in the Old Testament. Uh, and it's found kind of in the middle of your Bible, but just to the right. You'll find Psalms just about in the middle, and then Proverbs goes just one to the right. And we've been hanging out in Proverbs uh, chapter 3, 
And we're going to finish it up with verses 31 to 35. So I want to read all those verses to you at one shot and then come back and comment on them, okay? Proverbs chapter 3. I'm reading from what's called the New International Version of the Bible. Here we go. Do not envy, Solomon says, a violent man or choose any of his ways. For the Lord detests a perverse man but takes the upright into his confidence. The Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the righteous. He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. The wise inherit honor, but fools he holds up to shame. Now, as you look at this verse, this section of verses, um, what, what I noticed as I was doing my own prep for this is something that I ended up looking at this section, I'm like, he's just basically saying that there's two things going on in the world, and he wants his son to choose one of them. And so the, the best way for me to visualize it was I took my, my pens out. I have colored pens. Don't judge me, by the way, for using pink, because I did use a pink pen. I don't know if that bothers you psychologically. It did me a little bit. And so here's what I did. I took a picture of my notes. So here, by the way, is just kind of chicken scratch, rough draft of stuff that I'll work on. And so what you can kind of see is all kinds of circles. The pink might pop to you because it's the brightest. Kind of, if you can, disregard that just for a minute. You'll find in verse 30, one, it says, do not envy a violent man. That violent is circled in dark. It's actually purple, might look black to you, but notice all the words that are circled in dark, all the purple words, and you go down the list and you see violent, perverted, wicked, mocker, and, and fool. And Solomon is actually describing one person there with all those characteristics. These are not five different people. In fact, these are all characteristics of one person. His opening argument to his son is don't envy a violent man. And then he goes on to nuance that a little bit. And he said, someone who's also violent is also perverted. Someone who's perverted and violent is also wicked. They also are a mocker. And they just bottom line, they're a fool. And so imagine this for a minute. Imagine calling... Your teacher, your in-laws, your friend, your brother, your sister, this. You violent, perverted, wicked, mocking fool. <laughs> Fairly strong, isn't it? Which begs the question, who in the world ever calls anyone that? And who in the world ever would want to be that? And if no one would ever want to be that or have this be identified for who they are, why in the world does Solomon need to warn us not to be the person that we would never, ever want to be? Right? Right? I mean, thank you, Solomon, but I can't think of a single person who would actually ever want to line up and be like, yeah, I, I would envy the violent. Like, I look at the people who are perverted, and I'm like, dude, how can I be like them? You know, the mockers, the people who, who thumb their noses at God, are like, I'll just do it my way. You know, maybe I'll be like them. I mean, who does it? Do you know anybody who does that? I mean, we know people who do it. Do you know anyone who longs to be known this way? And so I had to ask myself the question, why would Solomon tell his son, don't envy? Because that's how he opens it, right? Look at verse 31 again. He says, do not envy. I could imagine him saying a wealthy man. I could him saying an influential man. But when's the last time you have envied a violent person? When's the last time you've looked at someone who's been violent and be like, man, I want to be known as violent, <laughs> And here's what I think is happening. I think Solomon realizes that underneath violence, the reason for violence is what Solomon is warning against. That I like to go to, in my brain, the infant nursery to give good illustrations of human behavior because these little people, toddler nursery I'll call it, two, three, four-year-olds, these little people who walk around the planet, 
they do the very same things that grown adults do, it's just they don't have the filter to protect themselves yet from it, right? So we're all kind of in this space. Imagine for a minute three kids sitting in the toddler nursery. You have Johnny and Susie and Billy sitting back there. I don't know why we give those names, but I'm going to. Johnny is sitting there. Susie has a block that Johnny wants. Now, Johnny is a little bit smart enough to know that if I bop Susie on the head when the tall person in the room is looking, that will get me in trouble. But I'll wait till they turn, and then I'll get my block by bop Susie on the head. She'll start crying. She drops blocks all the time when she's crying. And then I'll bop. There goes the teacher turning. Bop. Grab block. I have it. Johnny, Susie. Billy over there is sitting there. What's he learning? Oh. That's how you get blocks. You just wait till the teacher turns, you bop them on the head, they start crying, but then you get what you really wanted. And we are never, Billy over here isn't actually envious of the violent act, but he is envious of what the violent act produces. So I'm not envious, I'm not tempted to violence, but I am tempted by violence. That makes sense. I'm not tempted by the process of violence, but I am tempted by the product of it. I do violence to you, and you do violence to me. When I choose to bop you on the head and take from you what is rightfully yours. I do violence to you when I'm short to you, when I talk behind your back about you. I'm, I do violence to my spouse when I choose not to forgive. I do violence to my classmate, to my teammate, when I choose relationally not to do the things that I know I should do. I do violence in business to people when I know that I could charge them a better price, but I'm going to gouge it just a little bit because, frankly, I can get away with it and no one is going to bother me, and I do things that are unjust, that are violent, wicked, perverted, mocking, and they're strong words, but Solomon knows that underneath this, all of us have this instinct that says, what is the fastest way that I can get what I want? And generally, it involves doing harm to someone else so that I can get it for myself. He's just saying, don't envy the results of violent people. Don't envy the results of people who are wicked, mocking fools. So people who say, basically, I am going to be the king of my own heart. I'm going to do it in the way, in the timing that I want to do it and get what I want to get. And who cares what God thinks? I'm going to do whatever I want. Don't envy them. He goes on to compare it in the text. Let me go back to my chicken scratch up here. So look now in the text up here, at what probably looks like green to you, the green circled words. You'll see um, in verse 32, um, upright is circled probably, uh, righteous, humble, wise in verse 35. So these are all the, the comparisons that Solomon is making. He says, don't envy the violent man, but, but do go after the person who is upright, righteous, humble, and wise. And so if you look at it this way, would I rather be known in the top sentence is a violent, perverted, wicked, mocking fool, or an upright, righteous, humble, wise person. I added person because I needed a word. Okay, I mean, th this isn't even a conversation, right? I mean, this is, a, well, clearly, I'd rather be known, I think you'd rather be known as the person on the bottom. And so why is it that Solomon even needs to make this warning? Doesn't everybody just choose this on their own? 
Here's what I think is happening, that if I go back just for a minute to this section of Scripture again, if you'll notice, I circled verse 35, because what I think Solomon is doing is in verse 35 is saying, the wise inherit honor, but fools he holds up to shame. That is his closing argument with his son. That is a summary of two different paths, two different ways of living. All of the wicked, perverted, mocking stuff, that comes down to just being a fool. All of the upright, righteous, humble, that comes down to being wise. What Solomon is laying out at the end of verse 35, it's just simply saying to his son, son, you're going to have choices in life, and of all the choices you can make, of all the people you could date, of all the careers you could have, of all the ways you could build your kingdom, of all the economic impact you could have, of all the social impact you can have, of all the ways that you will end up impacting people, ultimately it comes down, you're going to choose every day to be on one of two paths, either the path of wisdom or the path of foolishness. I'm just going to bottom line it for you. And he's just saying, there's only, I'm going to take it back here, there's only really two paths that you can choose, the wise or the foolish, over and over and over and over again. In every interaction, in every marriage, in every parent-child relationship, in every dating relationship, in every business, in every relationship we have, in every opportunity, it's just going to be, am I going to choose to submit myself to what in the world God wants, or am I going to kind of run on this thing by myself? And he just wants his son to stop and think, what should I do? Because the reason is, God is for the wise and against the fool. God is for the wise and against the fool. So if God is for the wise, Solomon wants his son to be wise and against the fool. Now it goes further. That God actually brings honor to the wise and shame to the fool. God brings honor to the wise and shame to the fool. And so we ask the question, how do you want to be known and how do I want to be known? When people whisper your name and you're not around and they say, oh yeah, do you know so-and-so? And And your name comes up. How How do I want my name to be known? Oh yeah, man, there are they're, they're great. What a great couple. I mean, what, a, what, what a great guy. I and mean, she is so kind and generous. I mean, what, a, what a powerful witness they've had. What a, what a strong family. They've gone through some hard times. They're not perfect, but man, what a great example they are. Be, because the wise people receive honor. The fools bring shame. Oh, yeah, I know them. Yeah, you do too? Huh. Yep, so next thing. Sometimes afraid even to verbalize the reputation that some of us might have. So here's what I think. Here's the the challenge. My theology and my experience tell me this, both what I think I've seen and what I think the Bible teaches, is that people, let me go back to my infant toddler nursery scenario, people when left to themselves, me when left to myself, I think the Bible teaches, and I think my experience shows it, that I will, if I don't think the teacher's looking, I'm going to bop Susie on the head and take her block almost every time. That I am, I am tempted to live life being the king of my own universe, because that's just the way I think. That's the way kids are born into this world. They cry for their food. I get it. I'm not against that. It's just the way it is. That there's something in us that by default, by instinct we will lean toward, and this may be hard, so you can disagree if you want to, but I'm just going to tell you this. I believe we lean toward, by default, the path of the fool, not the path of the wise person. I'm not saying you're foolish. Don't, don't hear me say that, that you're dumb. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that theologically and practically, when we are left to ourselves, we tend to think about ourselves. 
Therefore, if we want wisdom, we must pursue it, not just avoid foolishness. It is not enough just to say, I hope I never become foolish. I hope I never become perverted and wicked and mocking. I hope I never, I hope I never, I hope I never, and actually have no plan on the inverse side to pursue wisdom. Because if left to myself, I pursue foolishness, then I will do that unless I have a clear plan in place to pursue wisdom. Which is why I think this is Solomon's closing argument to his son. Son, in all the things that you're going to do, I want you to know, here's the value of pursuing wisdom, and here's the danger of falling into foolishness. And here's what I want in this entire series for you. I think I've said it before, and I want to say it again here. And that's this. I want you to pursue wisdom because it's more valuable than and more useful than anything else. I mean, Solomon said that, and we covered that a couple of weeks ago, that, that wisdom is actually more valuable than and more useful than anything else that you can run into. He says it's more valuable and useful than resources, money, the best things that you can imagine. It's more valuable and more useful than that. And the question then becomes, if this thing is so valuable, what actually is it? And let me say it one more time. Wisdom, in my little words, wisdom is learning how to live like someone with God's character in every situation you face. Wisdom is going to be learning, how do I live in my marriage, in my parenting? How do I live in school? How do I live in my class? How do I live in my business? How do I lead this organization? In a way that if God himself were in my shoes, if the character of God were fully present in me, God would do this. He would think this way. He would give this kind of chance. He would lead this way. When faced with fear, he would. When faced with an opportunity to step back, he would. When faced with a chance to forgive, he would what? That is what wisdom is, is stepping in with the fullness of the character of God into every space that you and I inhabit. And that is why it's so difficult. The question is, how in the world can people like you and me, who know ourselves too well, I know myself too well, and you know yourself too well, and all the struggles that I have, and you know your struggles yourself too. How in the world can people who are flawed like us get to this level of idealism, to live like God himself in every aspect of our lives? It's crazy. Jesus actually had something very important to say about it. I want you to turn to this passage of Scripture with me. We're going to turn to one last passage, and we're going to wrap it up in a minute. But in the New Testament, in the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus tells a story. It's a short story. Turn into a kid's song. You might start to be tempted to sing it in your brain, but Matthew chapter 7. So I want to invite you to turn if you can or flip on your app or whatever you want to do, but Matthew chapter 7, the first book in the New Testament, about two-thirds of the way through the Bible. Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. Jesus is speaking, and listen to what he says as he talks about this, these two paths of wisdom and foolishness. And here's what he says. Therefore, as he's speaking... Sermon on the Mount kind of thing, speaking to a bunch of people. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a, here's our word, a wise man. A wise man. The, the theme, the genre, the motif of wisdom is carried throughout the scriptures. Jesus is tapping into what Solomon is saying. There's two ways to live, wise and foolish. The wise man, he says, builds his house upon the okay builds his house upon the rock right the wise man builds his house on the rock 
So, verse 25, the rain came down, the streams rose, the stress came, the pressure came, the deadlines came, I didn't have money for, someone dumped me, I was rejected, someone talked bad about me, things did not work out the way that I wanted, the winds blew, beat against that house, and everything kind of threw itself at me, and yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Verse 26, but everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like... The foolish man, the other path to live on, who built his house on the sand. By the way, the foolish man, we see no distinction between the homes. I would assume the homes look equally awesome or equally struggle. I mean, the, the homes are not the point. The homes could be looking just exactly the same. And from the outside, they could look identical. But here comes the rain, here comes the deadlines, here comes the pressures, here comes the struggles, here comes the, the sickness that you didn't expect, here comes a sudden death all of a sudden. And the winds blew and began the house, and it fell with a great crash. And anyone who's listening is like, oh, wow, what does that mean, Jesus? And he just, it's simple in this text. The difference between the wise and the foolish man is, not, is where they built their foundation, but the, the foundation is not that, not that they heard the words, right? Look again at verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. This is not complicated. It's just hard. Hard things don't need to be complicated. They can just be hard. And this is just hard. It is not complicated. Jesus is simply saying, hey, everybody hears. The wise and the foolish, they all hear. They're listening to the same messages. They're reading the same books. Everyone hears. Hearing gives you no credit. You don't get credit with God. Hey, I heard a sermon someday. I heard I read a book someday. Good for you for hearing we hear a lot. The difference between the wise and the foolish in Jesus' story, you put it into practice. Not complicated, just hard. And so, here's the question I ask myself. If I want to pursue the path of wisdom, two questions. First one is this. What personal habits help me pursue wisdom right now? If I were to ask you, and you were to ask me this question, we're sitting across the table out there, I'm um, grabbing coffee with you or breakfast with you or something like that. And we start talking, man, what are the habits in your life right now that you could say would help you pursue wisdom? And by habit, I don't mean, well, I don't want to become a bad person. That's a goal or a wish, that's good. I don't want to be crooked in my business, good. Now, what habits mark you right now because, you know, we are what we repeatedly do. We are what we repeatedly do. And so there isn't magic in this. There isn't even a special formula in this. It's not complicated. It's just hard. And so Solomon says this to his son, and I think this is part of the reason for his closing argument. Like, son, I know this is going to be hard. Every single day of your life, every moment that you face, every relationship you're in, every opportunity you have, you just have to decide what are the habits that I'm going to set up so that I set myself toward the direction of walking the path of wisdom. I think I've shared with you guys before, I know I have, that um, I, I grew up in a, an environment that was great. So many, so many good things about my church background that I'm really, really grateful for. And one of the things that um, was also a struggle for me, I think I've shared this before, is um, 
I've wrestled with the feeling, and we used in our little world where I grew up, this concept of devotions, for example, that every day that you should, for X amount of period of time, read your Bible, pray every day. And there's a kid's song that went with this, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Anyone know that song? And you'll grow my alone. Grow, grow. Someone can sing with me. You'll grow, grow. Okay. And it was a simple formula. It's real simple. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And then it got worse. Like, neglect your Bible, forget to pray, and you'll shrink shrink, shrink. That's terrible. It was kind of fun because we got to go down as kids and jump up and down and up and all that. That was great. That was the, the essence of the point, and that is that basically devotions become the driver of the Christian experience, that devotions become the thing that drive you to know God. And somewhere along the line, you realize that, and that's, I think I've said it again here before, that what is actually more important than devotions is devotion. And that, to me, was a hallmark moment for me of realizing that it isn't about the activity of reading the Bible and praying every day. It actually is about the devotion of the heart to know God. And the devotion of the heart is very different than the devotions of the, the hands. And so my habits today are still driven by a desire. I schedule myself in. I calendar this daily to be in the Word of God in prayer. Not because of devotions, but because I want to set myself habitually on a path of wisdom. And I think I've been honest with you that I schedule it daily so it happens at least every other day. That I don't have some amazing like four-hour spiritual time in the morning with Jesus. Like, that is not a regular part of my deal. But I have to schedule and calendar myself to create habits personally where I can say, I don't know. I don't know how in the world you live with the wisdom of God in every situation that comes up. Life is so dynamic. I don't know. But I do know the wise man is the one who put it into practice and they obeyed the words of God. And so I need to know the words of God and so I want to get into the word of God. And so I want to encourage you to consider what personal habits do you have that help you know the words of God? And I would encourage you to consider how am I personally engaging the Bible, reading the scriptures? What does that look like for me? Where else can I find that wisdom of God? And here's what I also want to encourage you with. I wish someone would have told me this. You cannot do any more to love, for God to love you now than he already does. And so when you commit to habits that change you, it's not as if somehow God is looking at you now and being like, now, now I love you, man, now, now. Because you've been consistent for eight straight days, man. Good for you. You are awesome. You, you missed a day? Hold on. Yeah, I know you're praying. Hold on. Let's get back to the devotions thing. I'll come back when you're ready. Okay, we're back. You're consistent now. Now, now you're awesome. Listen, that's foolishness. You cannot do any more to have God love you now. He loves you now, and he's loved you, and he's loved me while we were still sinners and far from God, as we were as far away from him as possibly could. That is when he poured out his fullest expression of his love for us in sending his son Jesus to die for us. So do not think that your habits actually make God respond to you better or give you more grace or give you more love of God. They simply don't. They just put you on the path to wisdom. And there's a distinction between the two. God in his great grace, his extended mercy, loves you even if you never do any of this stuff that I'm suggesting. And that is the wideness in God's mercy. Because he loves you no matter where you are, no matter what you do, whether you listen and do any of this or not. That is the wideness in God's mercy to love you regardless. But I'm just telling you, habits, the people who put it into practice are the ones who get on the path of wisdom. The second question is this, and then I'm going to wrap it up. What personal relationships 
help me along the journey. Who are the people around you who are on your team who help you get better at what you do? It's as simple as that. I need people to help me get better. I cannot do it alone. I am bad alone. Always going to be bad alone. I'm better at just about everything when there's a team around me, people working with me to do it. And so who are the people around you who you would look at and be like, you know what? I need to be together with them a little more often. Maybe I need to join, I don't know, a group of them. Maybe we just need to plan to get together for breakfast coffee. We just need to do something. But I have people. Who are the people around you that you can text, you can pray with, you can have spiritual conversations with, who can help you, challenge you, encourage you to be on the path of wisdom? What are the habits and who are the people? Now, with this, I'm going to close, I promise. Your present decisions, and you know this is true, your present decisions impact your future story. What you decide to do today becomes your future story. There are future marriages in this room. There are future children that will come from people in this room or listening online later. There are future businesses that will be started by you in this space. There are future successes and opportunities that will come. And I just want you, like Solomon wants his son, to be, when you encounter those things, to be on the path of wisdom, to know how do I lead into, how do I serve, how do I parent, how do I forgive, how do I do this, with as much as we can do to have the fullness of God's character expressed through our personalities into that space. That's what I want for you, to experience that. And that's why Solomon is sitting there, and I think he's saying, son, this this is good to know. There's two paths, wisdom and foolishness. The one will bring you honor. The other will bring shame. The path of wisdom, put it into practice. The path of foolishness, hear it and do nothing with it. And so I want to encourage you. Consider not just your present, but consider your future. Where you want to be, what you would love to do, how you want to be known, what kind of impact you want to have in this world for the sake of God. And ask, what are the habits that I need to create now? And who are the relationships? Who are the people that I need to connect with now? So that at the end of the day, I won't ever envy the violent man. I won't ever envy a shortcut to getting what I really want. Because I'm going to love what's upright. I'm going to love what's humble. I'm going to love what's righteous. I'm going to love what's wise. That the character of God can be shown through my life. Will you pray with me? Our good God and Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here in this space, in this moment, to hear again look into your word and be challenged by things that for many of us are challenging because they're so daily and regular and yet are so profound in their impact. And so I pray that you would help us to see the future, to see what we could be, to see what you're leading us to, to see the hope that exists down the pike today, tomorrow, next week, next season next phase of our lives, that when we get to that point, we can look back and thank you for your kind generosity of giving us a path to follow, of knowing you and your word and obedience, and doing that in the context of relationships. So I pray that you give us courage to develop habits that work, habits that matter, habits that change, that we can be driven to know you and put things into practice. And we can have relationships, people who encourage us when we fail. Be reminded that no matter what, God, you're a God who is wide in his mercy, kind in your favor, slow to anger and abounding in love and loving kindness. So, Father, I pray that you would help us to pursue and to want wisdom. People around us can see not just us where we live, but can see you through 
us. So we thank you for leading the way. Help us to walk in it no matter where we go. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray.